Over the last two weeks, we've been having a conversation surrounding this big question that many of us ask, which is, what happens when I die? And we've been focusing in on this biblical idea of resurrection with this understanding that our world is going to be redeemed instead of this unbiblical thinking where we think that we just escape to some other distant place called heaven and we leave the earth behind to be destroyed at some point in time. What we've been suggesting is that the way that we talk about heaven needs to shift and we have to include new creation in our language and have this realization that earth is not something that's second tier to heaven, but rather heaven is moving towards earth and God's future cosmic plan to restore all things with the climax being the scene that we find within Revelations 21 and 22 where God is with his people and heaven and earth become united like spouses at a wedding ceremony. And this is the exact imagery that we find within the book of Revelation. Now, alongside of scripture, we've been working through some ideas presented in Tom Wright's great book called Surprised by Hope. And so what we've been working toward is a reorientation of thought, of language, and of practice that doesn't try to force resurrection into some Western sense of heaven, but rather we want to start with resurrection and show how the biblical language of heaven fits within the resurrection. Now, it's important to be clear about what the word resurrection meant for Paul and the people listening, because it was never a term that was used to explain life after death in our traditional sense and understanding. Rather, it meant that people who have already died would be given a renewed body and would return to an embodied life like they had before. Tom Wright, in his book, uses the phrase that it's life after life after death when it comes to understanding the resurrection. So how would the Bible define heaven then? In Paul's time and language, heaven was just another way of talking about God or God's space. So phrases within scripture like riches in heaven essentially was, is scripture's way of saying they are riches within God's presence. Heaven would also be a term used as the place where God's purposes for the future are stored. They aren't meant to say, they aren't meant to stay there, or you don't actually have to even go there to enjoy them. In the same sense that I have snacks stored in my pantry, but I don't have to climb my shelf and eat them right where the snack is found currently. I mean, that is unless I'm hiding it from my children, I guess, but you understand the point. Heaven is where things are stored in anticipation of when they will become a reality on earth. But again, it doesn't mean it can't be experienced here and now either. In fact, in this week and next, we'll begin to unpack this idea of the overlap and glimpses to God's future in the present. So with our time together, I want us to begin to deepen our questioning beyond what happens when I die and begin to consider a larger question around what happens when God restores all things. And I want us to begin to explore uh, an even further question that is, and what does that mean for me here and now? In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this in verses 16 to 28. He says, And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. 
But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come, when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For the scripture says God has put all things under his authority. Of course, when it says all things are under his authority, that does not include God himself who gave Christ his authority. Then when all things are under his authority, the son will put himself under God's authority so that God who gave his son authority over all things will be utterly supreme over everything everywhere. Paul uses this language of a first harvest or first fruits uh, as he talks about Jesus, meaning that there's more to come, but Jesus was the first. And if we look closely at the resurrection narrative within the Gospels, we see a story of Thomas saying that he wouldn't even believe Jesus rose from the dead unless he saw himself, Jesus, in body with his scars. And what does Jesus do? He shows up in bodily form where his scars become visible to Thomas. We also see Jesus mistaken as a gardener at the tomb, and he's seen as just a traveler along the road to Emmaus. So it has to look like a human for people to make these kinds of mistakes, which suggests that there is a restoration of our current bodies in a new way, because Jesus is the first fruits of what we will experience, and Jesus gets his body back, although it has been transformed. And then at the end in verse 28, we see that Paul is also suggesting that the goal of all of history is that God will be supreme over everything, everywhere. In other translations, it says he will be everything in everything or he will be all in all. These are future tense statements, meaning that it hasn't fully arrived, but they all fit within this understanding of the creation narrative that we can find in Genesis, where God was with his people and the spirit hovered the waters. You see, what Paul is doing is Paul is using his understanding of resurrection to create a theology of new creation over escapism. In fact, escapism wouldn't have been in the reader's mind at this time. But if we continue in chapter 15, as Paul begins to discuss what happens to our bodies, Paul says this in verses um, 42 to 44, where he says, he says, it's the same with, way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. Now, he, he, he gives this on the back of, of having this conversation and this imagery of a seed dying and a plant being grown out of it. But this is where lots of bad thinking has come forward, and some of it has to do with how we interpret Paul's explanations of our old body and the new body. Some suggest in certain translations that there's this physical body and this spiritual body, which has, which has led to this idea that when it's been read, that we think that Paul is suggesting that he doesn't actually believe in a physical resurrection, but rather does believe in this disembodiment of the person when they die. But if we take a closer look, this is not an accurate translation of what Paul is suggesting in this text. Rather, the actual contrast that Paul's making is this idea between a present body that decays, that is ultimately destined to die, and a future physical body that doesn't decay and will never die again. 
Now, if you're a keener and reading ahead of me, you would be quick to point out that in verse 50, Paul says that our physical flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But that again is a term that Paul is using to suggest that our current body is corruptible and it's heading for death. And so the actual comparison here is not between what we would normally define as physical and non-physical, but rather it's between what is corruptible and decaying physicality and non-decaying physicality. Think of it in some senses to our current smartphones. Now I currently own an iPhone and they're notorious for slowing down to the point of not working every couple of years. Now, whether that's an intentional thing done by the company or not is a debate and conspiracies for another day. But the reality is, is that they get dropped and they break, their components slow down until the device ultimately dies. Now, all metaphors and language are ultimately going to fall short of God's glorious redemption. But with this frustration in mind that many, if not all of us, have experienced, think about this. What if Apple came forward and said, we've created a new phone. It's never going to break down. It's never going to wear down. It will never slow down we would all probably get pretty excited at this thought. And we may even assume that there's gonna be some design adjustments maybe, and it might look slightly different. But at the end of the day, it, it's still gonna look like and function as a phone. It just now has components that allow it to never wear down. This is what Paul's trying to suggest in 1 Corinthians, that our new bodies will be the old ones in a physical sense. They will look like a body. Remember, Jesus' resurrection and physical scars were seen. There will be a glorious transformation that changes them, not from physical to spiritual, but from decaying physical to non-decaying physical. Now, you may not be fully convinced, so it's important to look beyond this chapter and explore where else we see this understanding of new creation within Scripture. Because the resurrection of Jesus wasn't just about saving humanity, but was about restoring all of creation. And so with that, we turn to Romans chapter 8 uh, in verses 18 to 23, where it says this, it says, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. Now, again, the echoes of Genesis 1 within Romans 8 cannot be ignored. What's being talked about in Romans is that the resurrection is going to bring a new Genesis work where God will complete the project he began and he'll undo the mess that human rebellion has caused on the creation, including death itself. This thinking about a bodily resurrection fits beautifully within the Genesis account where we find the climax of Genesis 1 is where humans are created in God's own image and they're given the task by God to govern the earth. So as it was with Jesus' resurrection, it will be the same with ours, that we will become fully human. We will be fully restored for what we were made for in the first place, which again, we see in Revelation where we find another garden narrative. Now, this, image, this imagery gets pushed even further by Paul as he presents the idea of it being a new birth and currently creation being in labor pains up to this point. 
And, and that creation is on tiptoe, as it says in some translations, with expectation. But what is creation expecting? Creation is waiting for the moment when God's children are glorified and people rule creation as God always intended to do it through his image, through image bearing humans. But this idea of childbirth, again, shows that Paul does not have an escapist idea of how the resurrection of Jesus works for the world. Rather, what Paul is suggesting and getting to is that there's this birth. There's a birth of new creation that comes out of the womb of the old. And it's important to understand that the death and resurrection of Jesus, again, is not just limited to humanity. Tom Wright, in his book, says that the gospel of Jesus announces that what God did for Jesus at Easter, he will do not only for all of those who are in Christ, but also for the entire cosmos. It will be an act of new creation parallel to and derived from the act of new creation when God raised Jesus from the dead. So you see, what creation needs is neither abandonment nor evolution, but rather creation needs redemption and renewal, which is promised and guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus, who is resurrected to his old body. So the glory that Paul is talking about in the beginning of what we read in Romans 8 is not this glorious escape, but rather it's a glorious sovereign rule. And that is what creation is waiting and longing for. It's waiting for you and me and all of God's people to be revealed. It isn't waiting to share the freedom of God's people. It's waiting for the freedom that it will enjoy when God gives the glory and stewardship to his children, which was always intended for God's image bearers. And this is all done through the Spirit of God. Earlier in Romans 8, Paul says that the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. Again, resurrection appears to mean what he has been suggested in other texts, that there's a new bodily life, whatever state of existence one might enter immediately upon death. And this is where Tom Wright uses the phrase life after life after death. We often only think about what happens after we die, and there's a mystery to those moments immediately following death. But there will be life after life after death in bodily form, when all is restored and redeemed and God brings things to completion. Life after life after death is not just about playing harps while we float on clouds or simply roaming streets paved in gold or any other preconceived ideas that you may have. Rather, it's about the redeemed people of God existing in the new world to be agents of God's love going out in new and creative ways. The imagery that's found in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 is that God dwells with his people. He fills the city with his life and love and the river of life flows from this city out to the nations healing all things. Ultimately, it's a sign of a future project that awaits us. But it's also with the imagery of labor pains that we can begin to discuss what it means for us right now. Because what we are wrestling through is not just a distant thought we wait for, but rather we're to live as people of the resurrection who begin to usher in this new reality and glimpses through how we live now. Because all of creation currently has labor pains. It's longing for God's new world that we are to, and we're to share in that pain and that hope with that world. 
You see, what we've done with the view of escaping to heaven is we've given permission to separate ourselves from the pain of the world as we plan to leave it all behind someday. In that view, we live as people patiently waiting without much purpose now, instead of people deeply anticipating a new future who are desperate to bring it in, knowing that it's coming in fullness one day. You see, we're not to listen to the vision of the ultimate future and long for it and then forget our current world. Because everything we do now carries implications into God's future. Because nothing in the vision for the future is merely the future. Let me explain. The central reality of God's future is Jesus himself. Resurrection began with Jesus in the middle of history. So Jesus is not just a future reality, but rather he lived, died, and rose again, and now reigns currently, but the full future completion is still to arrive. This is what Paul suggests if we go back to 1 Corinthians in verse 58, when he says to stand firm that your labor is not in vain. It's an understanding that the bodily resurrection of Jesus means that what you do in the present for the gospel is not wasted time while you wait. Rather, that work will be completed and fulfilled in God's future in ways we currently could only guess. Too often what we've done is we've separated our future hope and our current responsibility. But if it's true that God is going to transform our present world, he's going to renew us, our bodies included, then what we do in the present with our bodies and our world matters because it's deeply connected to our future hope. Because ultimately it's pointing towards the work that God is going to perfect and complete in the future. And this understanding should launch us into our present reality with greater purpose once we realize that there's continuity between what we are in the present and who we will be in the future. This is where teachings of Jesus to store up your riches in heaven becomes even more encouraging because it's saying, store them up where God has the future because they will have an eternal impact when his future arrives, not just for you, but for all of creation. You see, what we do in the present matters because it will last, which is where I want us to simply begin the conversation which Paul brings forward in Philippians 3 with a text where Paul talks about being citizens of heaven. And it's another text where many people have read it and they've made assumptions as to what it means that we really don't belong on earth and we belong elsewhere. But if we look in Philippians 3, in verses 20 to 21, Paul goes on to say this. He says, But we're citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power which, with which he will bring everything under his control. Now, we don't need to belabor the point that Paul again uses the language of new bodies. My hope is that we understand that together. And now, and I'd rather us focus on this language of being a citizen of heaven and to understand it against the backdrop of Paul's readers. You see, Philippi, who Paul is writing to, was a Roman colony, meaning that people living within Philippi were proud of being Roman citizens. And, what they, would, and they would do their best to order their lives in ways that matched the way things were done in Rome. So if you ask someone about their citizenship in Philippi, they easily could have answered that they were citizens of Rome. Now, what that answer did not mean was that they were so excited to go and live in Rome one day. Being a colony, actually, it works the other way around. The last thing that any emperor wanted was a whole group of colonists to come back to Rome. They didn't have space. 
The task of the Roman citizen in a colony was to bring Roman culture and to expand Rome's influence where they were. This is why the understanding of Christian thinking when, when Paul says you're a citizen of heaven, meaning that we wait to go live in heaven, doesn't actually make sense within the world that Paul was writing to. Let's stretch this idea a little bit further to help bring some more clarification. Suppose things got difficult for the Roman colonists in Philippi. Suppose there was a rebellion. The expectation of the Romans within Philippi would be that the emperor, who is also known as the savior or the rescuer, would come from Rome to where they were located and change their situation. That the emperor would come and defeat the enemies and establish them as gloriously as Rome itself. You see, the goal was not for the emperor or savior to come in and sweep them away from where they were and take them back to Rome. And it's with this picture in mind that Paul is writing verses 20 and 21, that we're to order our lives in a way that reflects the ways of God where we are. Followers of Jesus and the church currently exist as a colony of heaven that carry the responsibility of bringing heaven as it is on earth. And ultimately, Jesus, the Savior, is going to come from heaven to earth and change the present situation rather than sweep us away. Jesus comes to us as the emperor would have for its colony. It is God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I want us to back up a few verses with this understanding where where Paul uses athletic language of a race and pressing on towards the goal to reach the end of the race and, and reach this heavenly prize, which can be seen in verses 13 to 14. You see, this is the call of Paul to push forward, knowing that the resurrection still lies in the future. And as citizens of heaven, as he will go on to say that we just read, we run, we sprint towards the end of the race, the redemption of all things. And that is what we're to keep our eyes focused on. Again, we find Paul pushing back against any sort of thinking that says, I've chosen to follow Jesus, I'm taken care of, and and my work is now done, and I just wait for the escape. Paul is suggesting that, no, we haven't arrived fully and that we have to keep pressing towards the goal until we are fully transformed. If you've ever watched any sports highlights, at the end of every year, they usually show the bloopers from that past year. And without fail, there's always bloopers of someone in a race, biking or running or whatever that race may be, that's leading the pack and they pull up too early celebrating, thinking they've already reached the end, only to wipe out or to be passed by someone in the final few moments. It's this kind of imagery that Paul is suggesting. Don't stop until you have fully crossed the finish line. The finish line being this heavenly prize, which again is living within God's new world with our new bodies where the work you have done in running the race has affected in some way God's new creation. So your life matters now, not just because of how it affects the world now, but because it carries eternal implications. You see, how we choose to live become the signpost pointing toward the future restoration coming that will be fulfilled at resurrection when death is defeated for good. The question we have to wrestle through is, what does it mean to live as a citizen of heaven with this new understanding? This understanding gives new meaning to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 25 when he tells people that they fed him, they clothed him, they helped him when he was sick. And when they asked Jesus, when they saw him like that, he tells them that as they've done it to others, it was as if they did it to him. Because those are the actions of the kingdom of God. Those actions act as signposts toward God's restoration. 
This means that there's no task too small in the kingdom of God. And this should be incredibly encouraging for all of us because how we handle ourselves in conversations, to how we treat our neighbors, to how we care for creation, all is a part of what it means to live as a citizen of heaven and to follow Jesus here and now. It means the jobs that you've done that have been unseen by people will be completed in full resurrection. It means we can constantly have the opportunity to make an, an, an eternal impact on this world around us as we interact with it as people of the resurrection. Because again, our goal is not to escape. Rather, it's to know as citizens that the Savior will come and set up heaven on earth when resurrection happens. So our goal as Jesus followers is not to meet Jesus so we can stop working or help others meet Jesus so we can pat ourselves on the back and stop there. The goal of God is that heaven would come on earth and that once we encounter Jesus, then it's time for us to go to work, to live as citizens of heaven who belong to another kingdom and are working to bring glimpses of that kingdom to our current reality with the understanding that it's coming here in fullness one day. Remember, the purpose of the new body that we will receive will be used to rule God's new world. There's going to be work to do and we will relish in it. All the skills and talents we have put to God's work in our current life and perhaps even the skills or interests we gave up because they conflicted with our calling will be enhanced. They'll be given back to us to be exercised for God's glory. And we can know it's coming because Jesus was raised in the middle of history as the first fruits of the resurrection life. So the same spirit that raised Jesus will give life to your mortal body. The same spirit is already at work in you because the future isn't merely the future because Jesus is central. And creation is longing with bated breath at the arrival of God's people to be fully restored so that it too will experience its freedom. If you follow Jesus, you're a citizen of heaven. And this has to affect how we think about justice within our world. But we will explore that next week. May God's grace and peace be with you.